you've heard the passage for preaching from Zephaniah chapter 3. I want us to look at this end of this chapter with this thought in mind, straight from the passage. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. A lot of fascinating stories that have been coming to us on this whole Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot of stories of bravery and valor and fearlessness. I think a lot of us would have assumed when it started, it would have been over pretty quickly. And um, so we've been kind of shocked to see the people's resolve. One of the ones that have really hit me the most was this one I saw this message from the Ukrainian Library Association about the cancellation of their upcoming conference. This was their message. We will reschedule the conference just as soon as we have finished vanquishing our invaders. Quiet confidence and fearlessness in the face of such danger and certain calamity. And if you think about our context here in, the, in Zephaniah, you might remember that certain doom was at hand. I mean, God was about to destroy the nation and of Israel and carry them off into captivity, specifically under Babylonian captivity, because of judgment. Judgment of God had come. And he was about to judge their wickedness and their unfettered sinfulness. The sinfulness of the people and the sinfulness of the leaders of Judah. And so God would bring this judgment through the carrying away of his people into captivity. So it's very bleak and not much reason to rejoice, you could say. Through his prophets, God had called for repentance, but it had not happened. Real true repentance had not come. And so now the call is to prepare for judgment because it is at hand. And in the midst of this message of thundering doom, from the prophet, however, comes also a message of calming grace and mercy because of the love of God, which he has for his own people. And as we've already noted, this is the way of preaching. Real biblical preaching is truth about the condition of man. Truth about the curse of sin and the fall and the certainty of judgment. But with that message always comes the hope of salvation and redemption. And the same message that will cause the rebels, those who hate God, to hate Him even more will break the hearts of God's people and cause them to fall before God in repentance and cry out, my Lord and my God. This has always been the way it has been. God has always preached through his pe people, through his prophets and his preachers, the truth of the condition of man, but the beautiful redemption story that is in Jesus Christ. The promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, is not a New Testament promise, but an ancient one. We hear that in Hebrews chapter 12, and we quote it. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says there, for he has said, he will never leave you nor forsake you. The Old Testament is replete with these promises. 
Deuteronomy 31 and 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be dismayed. 1 Samuel 12 and 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his name, his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The psalmist in 37 and 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So here in our text, we have the same promise. Again in verse 11, on that day, on that day, you will not be, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me. We talked about this a little last week. This is an amazing testimony of grace from God. He doesn't say, I will ignore your deeds. But he says, I will not put you to shame because of the deeds that I should have put you to shame for. You rebelled against me, but rather I will remove from your midst the proud, exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel. So here's this idea again of God persecuting, punishing, judging the nation of Israel and destroying them and carrying them off into captivity. But the real Israel of God, he will save. Those who are left in Israel shall take refuge in the name of the Lord. The message of Zephaniah is an ancient message of hope from God. The Lord God Jehovah of Israel. The God of creation who loves his own and will never forsake his own. Church, that is the message of our God to us. We are living in that day. It began when Israel was brought out of captivity, sure. But we are certainly living in that day. That day of the future hope. That day of the ultimate fulfillment of all these prophetic words that are found in Jesus Christ. It will continue until all is fulfilled. Until we are all gathered with him in the everlasting kingdom that John saw in the revelation coming down from heaven. And so today I want you, church, to rejoice and glory in the God of your salvation. We ought to bask in his love for us. Be lifted up because the Bible says we are precious in his sight. You have found favor in the eyes of the God of glory. Based on nothing you did, nothing you brought to the table, but you have found favor with God. You have infinite worth because the infinite God has chosen you for his own. And we must preach that message in that context. You weren't of infinite worth, but you are of infinite worth because God has chosen you. Look at what this text says. You shall not be put to shame. We deserve it because of our deeds of rebellion that we have committed against God. But shame is no longer where we live. Haughtiness is no longer our nature, but rather we are humbled and lowly, brought to a different demeanor. And he says, and you shall trust in the Lord, or as the ESV puts it, seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And this is not some mystical trite church slogan, but you really are to take refuge in him. You think about this war that we've been all looking at videos of. This turmoil and danger and pandemonium that's all around these people that we can't, most of us, not even really envision ourselves 
being surrounded by. But it should give us an idea of what a refuge would be in that. A true refuge. In the midst of bombs and gunfire and explosion. A place of quietness and solitude and peace where there is no danger. That's what God is like in the midst of this world that we live in. The psalmist said in chapter 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so when we put this analogy to work for us, we live in the midst of a raging battle, raging war all around us of sinfulness and wickedness. Not armies and bombs. But we have a refuge in our God in the midst of whatever is going on. And so because of this, the people of God, even though judgment is at hand for Israel in Zephaniah's day, the real true people of God, the true Israel, he says, are to sing aloud and shout and rejoice and exult with all the heart. Why? Because all around the people of God is good. No, that's not it. Because everything is gone as planned. No. Because you have all the earthly pleasure your heart desires. No. But rather you rejoice and sing because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. As the Bible puts it in one place, the handwriting of ordinances which was against you, he has wiped them out. It's an amazing blessing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this. If you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are with those in Israel who had no hope and who would only grow in anger towards God when this message of judgment came. But if you hear the voice of God and you hear the shepherd calling you to faith, to come and believe in Christ, then you have this refuge in the midst of all that is going on around you and all that has gone wrong and everything that you think is messed up in your life. You have a refuge. As it says here, the king of Israel is in your midst. What a beautiful word. Even if things are messy in your life and things haven't gone the way you wanted, your plans have gone awry, Still, the Bible says you shall never fear evil because the king of Israel is in your midst. And who is the king of Israel? This is a beautiful thing right here in the middle of the Old Testament. These minor prophets that are so obscure that most people won't even read it, let alone preach it. Right here, the prophet, thousand plus years before the birth of Christ, says, Israel, be of good cheer. Be of great hope. Why? Because the king of Israel is in your midst. And I, I hope you heard what um, Max read to you from John chapter 1 when Nathaniel saw Jesus and heard him speak for the first time. Did you hear what he said to him? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus preached through the prophet Zephaniah. He is the king of Israel. A direct reference in the Old Testament to the Messiah who was to come. So because of him, your life may not be what you planned it to be, but it will be what he planned it to be. And he will do what he has promised. He will work out for good what he has planned for good. And this glorious hope, you shall never fear evil again. This was the people's promise. When they come back from Babylon, that captivity, they were going to be in a different place. He was going to purify their language. He was going to get all the wickedness out of them. It didn't mean there would be no more sin there. 
but it was a it was a prophetic hope that would become reality when the Messiah finally came. And it is a reality now. It has begun and it will continue. And he will continue to work out sin in our lives and he will continue to do away with the fear that we have of evil. And it will cause us to rejoice and sing. And he says, fear not. In fact, do not let your hands grow weak. This is a reference towards those of us who believe in the work that we are to be about, the life that we are to be living. This is a good chance for those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace to prove what we believe. And that is that because we've been chosen by God and because he has overcome us with grace and brought us to faith in Christ and given us belief that we have been created in Christ Jesus under good works. So let not your hands grow weak. Don't let anybody ever tell you, well, you go to one of those churches that just preach that everything's already taken care of, so just live how you want to because it's all going to work out like it's supposed to. No, God is very clear from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Yes, he is sovereign over all things. He has ordained all things. He has ordained even the secondary means, the, our ability to choose and not choose. But at the end of the day, it gives us no call. Nowhere does the Bible say, just sit back and enjoy the show. We are to put our hands to the plow and go to work. Right here he says, hey, there'll no longer be evil in your midst. I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will destroy all your enemies. And you can sing. But not only are you to sing, but you are to put your hands to the work. Do good. Very reminiscent of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Church, our commands from God are our responsibility. Yes, we believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in the sovereign God over all things, especially salvation. But that same sovereign God has also ordained that we, as the children of God, the saved people of God, that we do the things that God has commanded us to do. Now we have a reason to. Why? Because we no longer have to fear evil. We'll no longer be kicked out. We'll no longer be overtaken. We are to rejoice in the God of our salvation. We're to take refuge in him. But in that refuge, we work. And somebody put it so well. The reason those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace ought to be the hardest workers is because we know it won't fail because it's not about our efforts. It's about God and what he has ordained and it will come to pass. So we have a reason to preach the gospel and believe that when we preach the gospel, people will be saved and the church will grow. Those people in Vietnam, they have the government against them. They have all the Buddhists against them. They have all the ancestral worship against them. But when they preach the gospel, God will save people out of that just like he did for Israel in Zephaniah's day and like he's done it throughout all of history. We are to run the race that has been set before us because the Lord God is your is in your midst. A mighty one, Zephaniah, says, who will save, and not only will he save, but look what else it says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. This is an incredible picture of love toward a people. 
specifically God's love toward his people. It is marital language. Like a groom who would rejoice over his bride with gladness. And then the bride who sees her husband rejoicing over her and that she makes him glad, it brings quietness to her soul. So God takes his bride, the church, and rejoices over her and exults over her with loud singing. Not sure there's anywhere else in the Bible that we are told God sings. But he sings over his people. He loves his bride, the bride of his son, so much that he would sing over us. Spurgeon mentions that in the days of old, the groom would have a song to sing over his bride on their wedding day. A song of rejoicing and exultation because of the joy and the fulfillment that he anticipated his wife would bring to him. And so it is with our God. I didn't sing for you like that. I'm sorry. It was in my heart, though. It was bursting out. I just didn't sing. But that's an interesting take. That that's what God does for his people. A picture in the ancient ceremony where the groom would sing the song over the anticipation of the fulfillment his bride would bring and the joy that she would bring. God rejoices over us and sings over us. This is an amazing thing. The almighty God of creation condescending in such a way to make himself look like a man that he would sing over a bride. That's how much you mean to God if you are his. Spurgeon notes about this further. Think of the great Jehovah singing. Is it possible to conceive that the deity would break into song, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost together, singing over the redeemed? Now that would be quite a, a trio. That would be quite the harmony. God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people, he says, that he breaks the eternal silence, the sun and the moon and stars with astonishment. Here God Rejoicing. Give me just a second. That's the wrong button. Lost my spot. We hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Spurgeon continues. Think about this. He did not sing when he made the world. No, he looked upon it and simply said that it was good. The angels sang, the sons of God shouted for joy. Creation was wonderful to them, but it was not much to God who could have made thousands of worlds by his mere will. Creation cannot make him sing. And I do not even know that providence ever brought a note of joy for him, for he could arrange a thousand kingdoms of providence with ease. But when it came to redemption, that cost him dear. Here he spent eternal thought. And drew up a covenant with infinite wisdom. Here he gave his only begotten son. And put him to grief. To ransom his beloved ones. When all was done. And the Lord saw what became of it. In the salvation of his redeemed. Then he rejoiced after a divine manner. What must the joy be. Which recompenses Gethsemane and Calvary. Here we are among the Atlantic waves. The Lord God receives an accession to the infinity of his joy in the thought of his redeemed people. He shall rejoice over thee with singing. What an incredible thought. That God would write a song about you. Any of you ever had anybody to write a song about you? But God has written a song. I thought about this. The angels sang at the announcement of the Messiah's birth. 
but the Trinity sang at the birth of his church. It's an amazing thought. If God sings over our redemption, then so should we. Man, it ought to give us a little bit more umph when we sing together on Sunday mornings. We look at these songs that we sang just a while ago about redemption and what God has done for us. Truly, we ought to look at this passage and be able to rejoice, church, and take refuge in the name of our Lord. He is a great God. He loves us so much that He not only sent His Son to die for us, but He's also caused heaven to fill with the singing of God, whatever that must sound like, over His people. We have a lot to rejoice about. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. What a beautiful word it is. God, we ask your blessings on the reading of it and the teaching of it. And I pray that your church has been edified and that we'll be reminded of what an awesome thing you have created in redemption. We really are new people. Help us to stop living according to the old flesh. Why as though, why would we live as though we want to be back in the chains from which we have been released? Just as Israel came back to their home from Babylon, they would never want to go back to Babylon. They should never want to go back to Egypt. So we should never want to go back to what we were brought out of. But God, we ought to sing and rejoice because you are singing and rejoicing over us. Give us faith to believe this. Lift up our hands. May they never fall feeble, feebly beside, uh, by our sides. But may we put our hands to the plow and live in a way that proves our salvation. And when we fail, and we will, remind us of this. Remind us of how precious we are to you. How that you sing over us. No matter how down and out we become and how bad things fall apart for us in this life, you have made us for another life. Yes, we have abundant life here, but it may not look like what we want it to look like. We thank you. You have orchestrated all things for your glory and for the good of your people. So give us faith to believe that and eyes to see it. And give us a song in our heart because of the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.